I'm just thrilled that, that we can meet together yes. and, and tackle this maybe difficult subject. Uh, so when I was asked to, to preach about this, and for those who have not been with us the last few weeks since the beginning of the year, we've been looking at the Sermon of the Mount. We started with the Beatitudes. We've been working through that. Today is the last Beatitude, Beatitude number eight, um, and it's about persecution. And so on, when I was asked to preach about this, I sort of approached the topic with some trepidation. Um, as my, as my lo lo lovely wife pointed out that she's, she's very excited by the first seven. Can we stop just <laughs> Can we just kind of do those first seven and somehow not have the eighth one, right? And, and so maybe also, you know, I think we, I don't know how you guys feel. How do you feel about, about this one? That says, you know, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed when you, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So unfortunately, some of the clues are already in here. But forget that. Just how does your heart feel when you look at this beatitude? Who, who looks at this with excitement? Who looks at this with some trepidation? Mm, yeah. Right? Does this some kind of cause you to feel a little bit uncomfortable? Because there's kind of a promise in here, right? I mean, there's the next scripture. You know, it says there that um, in, in, uh, in 2 Timothy 3, it says that, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Mm. Okay, so... It is a promise, um, and, and, and maybe we should talk a little bit about that. I mean, how do we how do we see persecution in, in our lives? Do we do we feel do we feel that? Have we felt it? I think I shared this morning with some someone that I kind of feel uncomfortable when I think about this because I don't see a lot of persecution in my life. What does that say about how hard I'm trying to be righteous? Because it says that blessed are you when you persecute because of righteousness, not because of stupid things you've done. Stupid things and been persecuted for that, uh, but it's about, it's about righteousness, and and so let me make sure that I just don't ramble along and see. You know, there are some notes here. I spent some time preparing it, so let me get my head in it. Um, you know, so if we think about the kind of persecution the Bible often talks about, it's quite severe. Today, I want us to say that you know it's not just what we see the martyrs went through, right? Because maybe God's got a different set of trials planned for us, right? So when, what happened during the end of the first century and the second century was severe. We all know about what happened. We'll talk a little bit about it. But maybe, you know, maybe the real word is opposition. You know, to some degree hardship as well, but caused by the opposition. Opposition that we face because we just want to be righteous. We want to serve God. Not because we are uh, being like the Pharisees and um, you know, being self-righteous, not because we are trying to uphold a moral standard and judge people because they're not, they're not following that, but because we want to be righteous. We'll get a little bit into that as well. What does that righteousness mean and what is it that we should be striving for? Um, you know, so in the, in the first century or second century, um, this amazing book called Will the Real Heretics Please Stand Up? Mm. If you've not read it, Please do. And it's very encouraging as well, because apart from explaining the, the persecution, the tough times that, that those guys like Polycarp and Justin Martin, all those guys went through, 
They also, this guy that wrote the book, also said, well, it's not just what they went through, but what did they believe? How did they live? Mm. And the departure from today's general Christianity and concept of, of Christianity, or to see how today's general Christianity has quite departed from how those guys lived or what they believed, it's very refreshing to see. It's, it, in a way, it's exciting for me because that is what we're trying to do. We want to restore first century Christianity. And in a way, we can get all fuzzy about, you know, what is the truth and what is right. It's amazing to see what those guys believed because they were, they were taught by the apostles themselves. So that was encouraging. But what did those guys go through? There's this guy, Polycarp. And most of you probably know the story about Polycarp. But he was about 86. He was a really old guy. He was the leader of the church in Smyrna, somewhere in Turkey. Um, and he was caught by the Romans, and finally they said, you know, this guy, they had the crowds forced the Romans to, to take him to the arena, you know, where, where all the wild animals were let loose of these guys. And he's a frail old man, you know, but it's amazing how he stood before, before um, the, 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 I think it was a proconsul, one of these, these leaders of the Romans, and, and, and how he just said, well, I've served Christ, because what the guy said is, all you have to do is just denounce Christ. Just say that you don't believe in him. It's like, well, I'm not going to do that because that will be a lie. And then he'll say, okay, and all sorts of things. But eventually he just said, look, I've served Christ for 86 years and he's never done anything bad to me. Why will I now denounce him? And he was martyred there in front of thousands of people. Now, there are many of those stories. So those guys were literally, literally put to the test. What do you believe? What do you really stand for? And maybe none of us have been in a situation where somebody put a gun against your head, I mean, and say, all right, you know, say that you don't believe in Jesus. It's a bit of a farcical scenario anyway. I can't imagine anybody would do that. But none of us have gone through anything remotely like that. I don't think. You know, I may be wrong. And, you know, but we, our, our persecutions are on a different level, perhaps. Um, it's maybe a lot more personal. You know, maybe I can open this up and say, has anyone got some examples where they themselves, or friends of theirs, have been really severely persecuted. Just one or two, just to sort of get an idea of what people are going through in today's lives. Anybody? Lizelle. Um, when I, I got baptized when Heinrich was three months old, and in the traditional church that I was before, that was the age that we sprinkled babies. We called it baptism. And um, of course, my parents were overseas for a year, and they just returned when Heinrich was about 10 weeks old. And um, so everybody was asking, so when are you doing the baptism? When are you doing the baptism? <laughs> From both sides of parents, you know. And um, I, I didn't know what to say to them because I was, this, I was just studying the Bible and I knew that I was going to have to be baptized. And I remember the one day my mom asked me and I just, I couldn't say, you know, no, we're not baptizing him. And I went back and I spoke to Carrie from Mark that studied the Bible with me, and she said, well, you've got to be honest, you can't lie to them. And I had to go back and say, we're not baptizing Heinrich, but um, I'm getting baptized. <laughs> 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 so it was, we were harshly persecuted right. from our families, both sides. It was quite harsh. Yeah, yeah and that was yeah. maybe a familiar story for, for those who come out of traditional religious backgrounds, especially South Africans. We all grow up thinking and believing we are Christians because we were baptized when we were babies. Not, you know, this is, just, this is a funny concept. If you really think about it, what concept of God does a baby have? And we won't go into that, but you know, when you stand up and say, no, no, we're not going to baptize our kids because that's senseless. You know, what are we, why would we do it? We, we did get, you know, you know like Azel, did get opposition. 
And many, many people are in situations like that. Are there other examples? Yes, Maurice. Back in 2000, me and Adina, with two other disciples from Romania, went to Belgium, Yugoslavia, to start a church, but we were kind of undercover. So we were there in Sweden, so we actually were trying to start a church. And once we baptized a couple of people and we started to be more and more vocal at Oakland, one of the uh, one of the girls that was baptized, father who was a fighter, Kosovo, things like that. He, yeah, ex military. And he, he came and threatened us. Then he went to the police. The police came to our house with a gun. Oh my! <laughs> they took our passports. Then the next day we were in arrest the whole day in the police and they questioning wow. us, wow. interrogating and we're like, no, we're not studying church, but we cannot but you know speak about that because it's, this is what we believe and we're like, oh that's stupid we know what you're doing and uh are like do you want you want to rot in jail for the rest of their life? We don't care about four Romanians rotting in jail. And, uh, <laughs> then they said okay, you have forty eight hours to leave the country so Wow. Well, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, and I listen to those stories. I'm like, mm, yeah, I've not been through that. Perspective. Yeah, perspective, right? Uh, Michael, do you want to say something? Yes. Um, I went out in legal before we broke up into different groups. Um, we used to meet just in one central place, and it's like when you remember the traffic in Lagos and having to go from one, place, one part of Lagos to the other. I know that a lot of people used to question, but there are churches all around you. Why do you have to stress yourself to go that far? So, well, and then when, the next time when you are going on, and maybe another Sunday, you are still going to die in church. These are churches around here. Why do you think your church is better than all those other churches that are closer to you? Mm -hmm. so that was one. And I remember there was a particular time when I first got baptized. One of my aunties was asking me, oh, which church do you go now? And I, I told her, you know, oh, that's a cult. That the way they move everybody, doing, even when they finish service, they continue to stay, stay together, talk together. That, it's not real that it's a cult. <laughs> you have to leave that church. <laughs> so, those are Thanks, my mom. So, and I think, just to get an idea, that it does happen today still. I mean, if we think what happened in the first and second century, look at, you know, the disciples, if, and especially if you read those writings of the second century disciples, it's amazing to see how they lived. What we saw in Acts, these guys really, really, you know, just propagated that into the second century. So for the first 200 years, really, maybe into the second, into the third century a little bit, People were really living like we see in the Acts. It's amazing. Mm. You know, but they really stood for something. But they got all sorts of weird accusations, you know, leveled against them. They were accused of being cannibalism. <laughs> cannibalists, sorry. Because at their meetings, they partake, partook in take eating and drinking the blood and the flesh of some carpenter, you know, from Jerusalem. What the heck's going on there? They were accused of incest because the brothers and sisters in the church <laughs> married each other. You know, things like that, they, they, were, they were accused of being the atheists. So the Romans called the Christians atheists. Because the Romans had so many gods, and the Christians said, well, I'm not worshipping those gods. I refuse to buy down to your god that you've got wherever. They had it all over the palaces, all over the marketplaces. People were regularly worshipping to all these 
this plethora of different gods, and Christians said, well, we're not doing that. So they were called atheists. And in fact, it's very funny, that old story about Polycarp, when he was in the arena, the, 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 the Roman general told him, I just announce the atheists. You know, just, just, just announce all these atheists. And he stood there and he pointed at all the people around him and said, yes, I denounce these atheists. <laughs> and that obviously really got put the fat into the fire and then they grabbed him. And, but it's stuff that those people went through. I mean, it's crazy. They, they burned him in the stake, obviously. They would cut pieces of their flesh and, and, and burn it in front of them. You know, force people to... <laughs> this only happens when I'm here. I'm so sorry. And, um, you know, awful things. There's this one thing that I read is that they had like a, a, an iron chair, a chair made of steel that they put into a big fire to make it red hot. And then they will take it out and they will tie the fishes on top of it. And they will like roast on this chair. I mean, some of the stuff is absolutely horrific. They will wrap them in, in animal skins and then just charge them amongst the lions and wolves or whatever they've got there. And so they got mauled by these animals. I mean, crazy stuff. So it is really intense, you know, and we, we look at that and we think, oh my goodness, is this what I'm listening for? And as I said already, we thought, I think it's going to be on a different level. But, you know, we can also maybe, you know, this is economically exclusion. You know, there they had business parties that was, were in the temples. They had business meetings in the temples. Part of that, that the proceedings was to partake of the, of the temple, you know, customs, which were like they bring in the prost temple prostitutes afterwards to entertain all the businessmen. You can imagine the Christians like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. And then slowly get excluded from that. You know, but what do we, what else can we, you know, today, you know, what, what do we actually, what pressures do we experience? And at work, there's a lot of pressure to lie, to conform, nastiness. There's nastiness at work. There's between people, you know, you can have a boss that's putting pressure on you to, to give a bad report of one of your of your colleagues to try and work them out, you know, things like that. You know, maybe some of us have tried to help a relative of a ghost, close friend, really help them be reconciled with God or with somebody else. And just, and I know of a few examples, and some of you would, would know what I'm referring to, where we try to help these people and they actually turn on you and they really, really get, it's, it's, a, it's a nasty situation. You're trying to be righteous, you're trying to do the right thing, you're trying to, to reconcile people with one another and with God, and, and, and it's not appreciated. You know, and I think maybe the teens and the younger people, there's so much pressure to, to belong to groups. You know, what are you going to do when you say, no, I'm not going to go and do X, Y, or Z? You know, next thing you see, you're not part of that WhatsApp group anymore, or whatever you're using, Snapchat or Instagram, whatever it is. Sorry, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an old guy. <laughs> my, 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 son, my son often tells me I'm, an, I'm old. Yeah. And it's true, I am now old, so and I don't know all these things, so forgive me. But, but there's a lot of pressure right there, right? Uh, today's generations are, are growing up with that, that identity of the group is very, very strong and important, and, and it's fine. But, you know, are you going to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do whatever you are trying to force me to do? And, and, and that can, can mean that you lose friends, it can mean that you get bullied. The whole thing about cyberbullying is really, really nasty. It's, and it's real. You know, our kids yeah. go through that. And sometimes we don't even know it. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I like Ben Dennett's story about how he, when he was at school, they grabbed him, his friends grabbed him and put him in a bin because he refused to swear. They, they tried all sorts of things to get him to say swear words. And he just was, and he wouldn't. <laughs> they would grab him and dump him in a bin and they really ruffled him. And, you know, that kind of persecution, that's, that is real. You know? So sometimes we think, oh, that's right, I'll die for Jesus. But well, what small areas are we not standing up for? 
Yeah. And as I said already, you know, if, if this is a promise, where is my persecution? Right now, let's talk about it. So it's, it's, we've already talked about it. It is part of being a disciple, right? So we're going to promise that we're going to be, to, be, to be persecuted. Let's look at this scripture. And, and First Peter, by the way, if you want to get a better idea of the heart behind you know, suffering and persecution, First Peter is a fantastic chapter. The whole chapter looks like it's, it's set up to prepare the Christians for all these persecutions to come. That obviously plus revelation, that was, that was more encouraging because people are already starting to experience some of that. But First Peter, what it says here is, is um, and, and, and we're going to stand for a few minutes on this because I think it's important. We, we have to get to a point where we feel ready for persecution. I think that if, if we are not prepared by God for persecution, uh, this, this may be too much for us and our faith may buckle. And I don't think God will put us in situations that we are not willing to or, or ready for. So let's quickly read here. It says, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? Right? That's logic. If you do something stupid and people are going to get, you know, tell you off or they're going to be nasty and horrible with you, you kind of deserve it, don't you? Mm. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, when they hurled their insults in him. So we know that story, it's a great passage, I love it, but this was the interest of time, we're not going into that. But Jesus left us an example so that we will follow in his footsteps in terms of suffering, right? But what's amazing about this is that the rest of the chapter, right after it talks about, about Jesus' suffering, then it talks about and says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. A little bit later, it says husbands in the same way. Consider, uh, be considerate to live with your wives. And what, what this tells me is that you know, suffering, giving up parts of ourselves, is part of being a disciple. It goes into how we are being righteous. Right? It's all about righteousness. Uh, if, if we're going to be people that are righteous in our relationships with another, in our marriages, in our parenting, in those around us, we have to take on that heart of Jesus. We have to be already be prepared to suffer because we are following Jesus. And so, something else that I've, that I've thought of is, you know, just something to, to, to ponder on because this is, this is all part of our walk with God. As we are being refined by Jesus, you know, through everything that we're going through, slowly we are in the crucible. There's pressure. Slowly Jesus is transforming us into his likeness. And what was Jesus? A lamb, an unblemished lamb. What is an unblemished lamb destined for? Sacrifice. Right? Jesus is preparing us to be a sacrifice that will impact the world. So just think about that parallel. It's, it's maybe a little bit deeper for this time in the morning. We're looking forward to our lunches and so. But just, just let that sink in a little bit. You know, what's your life about? What are we living for? You know, Jesus is preparing us. He's preparing us to make an enormous impact on this world for righteousness. And it's going to take quite a bit from us. Alright, so Peter, Peter 1 again. Peter 1 is amazing. You know, the question here is, you know, how can we rejoice? Remember what the Beatitude says. It says, rejoice when they say insulting things about you. And it's one of those things, it's like, like James 1. Consider it pure joy when you face trials so many times. You sometimes read these things and think, 
It's going to be a while before I get there. You know, I don't, I don't even see the path towards that point. But we have to be ready to rejoice when we are insulted, when we face opposition, when we are persecuted. How do we, how, how do we get to that point where we are ready to rejoice? So, First Peter 1 verse 6 says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor in Christ Jesus revealed. Mm-hmm. Uh, isn't it amazing? So, I don't like the, this translation as much, um, but it's, it's, it's so that our faith will be tested. That's what the older translation says. Like, so, these things have happened so that our faith will be tested. The whole idea of the crucible. You guys remember that story of the guy that sits with the crucible and he's refining soda and somebody's asking, say, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm heating it up and as I heat it, all the crud and nonsense come to the surface and it takes a while and that has to be burned off and oh, that's very nice and then eventually the question is, when, you, when do you know when it's ready? And the guy mm. says, oh, that's easy. It's when I can see myself in it. Mm. And that's what God is doing with us. He's getting all that gunk out through everything that we are facing until he can see himself in us. That is, that is the end goal. End goal, mm-hmm. right? And so we can rejoice because whatever we are going through that's not great at this time, whatever it is because of persecution or just tough times we're going through, that's just a general concept for us to hang on to. God has got something most really incredible in store for us. And so is my faith more valuable than any treasure in this world? Do I view that? Do I view that? That my faith is the most important things. The nicest houses, the fastest cars, the best clothes, the greatest restaurants, everything I can spoil myself with, it doesn't compare to what God has got in store for us. It's hard for us to see that. But it's hard for us to get a glimpse of how amazing heaven's going to be. Remember what the Beatitude says, like rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. It's for us to get an eternal perspective. To try and remember that that's what we see right now. It's actually just a facade. It's just, it's just noise. It's not reality. You know, these, 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 this wall in a thousand years will not exist anymore, right? Mm. It's very solid right now. In a thousand years, it'll be nothing. In a million years, what will be here? We don't know. Ten million years, a billion years, what would that wall look like? Will, will anybody remember that there was a wall yet? Same with your car, same with your job, same with your house, same with your clothes. Just to get that eternal perspective, that will make us rejoice. Yeah. You know? And right now, are, are we aware of what God has already produced? You know, do we sit and meditate and think, where are we now? What have we learned? What has God, what has God produced so far? You know what? The things that God's produced in me was through hardship, not through reading something like, oh, that's great. I'm not going to be different. Well, some of it sort of gets sort of the seed is planted. That God uses a little bit of pressure to help that concept come to yeah. fruition in, rea- in the reality. Right. So, how else can we rejoice? Look at First Peter 4. I love this. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come unto you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Right? We were promised hardship. So I think this is, this, this is definitely to the Christians that you know starting to face some serious, serious persecution. Peter is saying, are you, are you surprised by this? Well, what have you missed? Where have you been? You know, this is what God has been preparing you for. He has been transforming you into the unblemished lamb 
to sacrifice, to be sacrificed for His glory. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the Spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Let that sink in. It's a special, special communion that you can only have with Christ when you go through a tough time. Only when you suffer, you can relate to Jesus. When we suffer for, for doing the right thing, we start to experience a bit of Christ that we can't read in the Bible, we can't have it in our normal fellowship, as great as that is, but as when God is starting to personally work on us on a gut level, heart level, that is when we're starting to commune with Christ at a level that is unbelievably precious. That is why we can rejoice. God is something incredible in store for us. You know, great is our reward in heaven. Do I have, do I have an eternal perspective? Or am I too concerned about the things that have a minimal impact on eternity? How much impact on eternity are the things that you're spending 80% of your time and thoughts on? Most of us it's work or other pursuits. How much of that is going to count in a hundred years, a thousand years? How much of that? Let me show you a video. This is for the youngsters as well. You probably have seen this already, but look at it again. Imagine this rope. Okay, pretend this rope just goes on forever. Now imagine that this rope is a timeline of your existence. You just exist forever. You see this red part? This would represent your time on Earth. You've got a few short years here on Earth, and then you've got all of eternity somewhere else. And what blows me away is some of you, all you think about is this red part. It's all you think about. You're consumed with this. You go, oh man, I can't wait till here. You know, I'm gonna work hard and save, save, save so I can really enjoy this part right here. You're consumed with that, and you're thinking, oh man, I'm gonna get to travel, am I gonna eat well, am I gonna do this during this part? And I'm like, are you kidding me? What about this? What about what about all this stuff? It's just it's crazy me because because the Bible teaches that what I do during this little red part determines how I'm gonna exist for millions and millions and millions of years forever. And, and so why would I spend this little red part trying to make myself as comfortable as possible? enjoying myself as much as I can. Paul says, look, I'm going to live my life for this mission. I'm going to spend my life, invest my life for this moment when I cross that finish line. So I'm going to forget about all the stuff I could enjoy. I'm not going to look around. I'm going to be like a runner just looking at that moment when I face God because when I face Him, then I don't get this chance over again. We get one chance at this life on earth. And it can end at any second for any of us. We've got one chance at this and then comes eternity. And so people look at some of my decisions and go, oh, you're so stupid because that's going to really affect this. I go, no, you're stupid because it's going to affect all of this. Man, I, I, I'm serious. I look at the way people live and I go, wow, that is so crazy. You are so crazy. You're going to do that right now. Just enjoy right now. Not even knowing if you have tomorrow and you think that's smart and that I'm wrong. Sometimes it's just hard to get a feeling, just a glimpse of how short this life is, how meaningless 
It really is. Well, it's like a, it's like if you look at a, a constellation and there's in there there's just one little flick of a light. In relation to eternity, that's your life. It's just a blink in a stretch of eternity. Your life is just, you know, Paul says, what's your life? It's a mist. Take an aerosol can today when you get home and just give it a squirt. And just look at how it dissipates. That's your life. It's gone. It's gone. Is that what? And it's gone. You've got no chances after that. Just like that. But it's hard for us, isn't it? So let me see where I am now. All right, so... Uh, my wife would love for me to finish right now, but I think what, what will be great <laughs> is uh, sorry, we, we, we try to try to maximize fellowship um, uh, in the services, but you know, we, we have to dig a little bit deeper as well and think, well, you know, that's great, so persecution is going to come and I'm going to rejoice because great is my reward and all that, but, but how does it work? So something that's helped me is going through the Beatitudes, I did a bit of additional studying and trying to get my head around why did Jesus write the Beatitudes? He did. What's it really saying? What does the whole of it mean? What, what does it mean? So, so I'm a sort of of the opinion that it's written in a literary, literary style called a chiasm. Alright, so sorry guys, there's a little bit of uh, thinking right now. So if you don't know what a chiasm is, this is a way that, you know, there are different, different methods that that, that, that the Bible was written. You know, Jesus used a lot of parables. There's a lot of poetry in, in the Bible. Chiasm is one of this. It's a type of poetry. But a lot of what God is saying is written in chiasms. And there's a reason for it. It's not just a funny, interesting quirk or a feature. So what it normally looks like is that, you know, you've got one part that, for instance, this is an example. You've got it's something that, that, that is mirrored. So there's text, a story that's, that's got two halves. And the one mirrors the other, and there's a central important bit. So the whole story is about what's that center. If you, if you, if you don't get that center, you miss the story. Right? That's, that's the point. That's why a chiasm is there. And so here's an example. God speaks to the prophet. The prophet goes speak to the people. The people respond to the prophet. They may not listen. God has to send stuff to make them listen. Whoops, they decide to listen. Right? Then they speak to the prophet, and the prophet goes back to God and says, Right, have mercy on the people like responded. So that's an example of a chiasm. Now if we look at the Beatitudes. If you if you look at it, here are the Beatitudes and it starts, it's bookended. That's one one way to know whether you're looking at something that could potentially be a chasm, like a chiasm. It's it's bookended. It's called an inclusio. So the first bit has something there is the kingdom of heaven, poor in spirit. The last one, those who are persecuted, the one we're looking at now. There's the kingdom of heaven. There are the bookends. And then you've got parallel, then you've got this pattern. And right in the middle is hunger, thirst for righteousness, and merciful. But if you, if you really want to get into it, here's an analysis of the, of the grammar. Uh, and so the tenses is, is, are, made, are mirrored as well. Quite interesting is these things that say divine passive, these are things that only God can do. It's not stuff we can do. So most of this, this is written, the tense is something that will, will be generated by God. I think it's really important. If we look at the Beatitudes, we can do what I suggest, you know, what I've mentioned before, where we, the Zal and I were talking about it, we're saying, oh goodness, all this is good, but oh my goodness, keep me from this one. You know, I'll try very hard here, but that's not the point. These are not things that God wants us to do. These are things that God wants us to become. Now what's very interesting, alright, now I did, I did a bit of analysis here, alright, so, come ready. Okay, so, what's interesting is the first four is really about your relationship with God. 
And, this, and, and the second four are about our relationship with one another. So the first is sort of a vertical, vertical direction. The second fourth four is a is horizontal direction. I, I mentioned before, when, we, when, I, when I talked two Fridays last year about the first four, I talked about there's a progression. There is a progression, and the progression is, oops, is yeah. So it's, it's essentially, you start with you realizing your, your sinful state. Your poor in spirit is really understanding who you are before God. That humility, that complete brokenness. Then, Godly sorrow is looking at your sin, getting broken about that Godly sorrow, getting ready to repent. Meek, in a sense, is when you repent, because meek means that you put yourself under God's control. You have the ability to go do whatever you like, but you decide, no, no, I want to please my God. And that leads you to a yearning to learn about righteousness, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the righteousness here is not just the do's and don'ts. It's actually not that at all. The righteousness the Bible talks about is mostly a relational righteousness. Malcolm mentioned it on Friday. It's a do right um, to somebody else, right? So, so whatever you need to restore relationships, to build those relationships, to protect them, to, to maintain them, that is righteousness. First with God. And then once you've got to that point, once you've restored that relationship with God, through that yearning to be with Him, then you realize God's mercy. If you've got at that point, you know that you, your breath, every single breath you've got is only because of God's grace. And that is the center of this chiasm, is God's mercy. Our yearning to be with Him, to be reunited with Him, to live in a relationship where we are one with God. And all that only happens through God's grace, through His mercy. Then we can show mercy to others. Then we are, then we are right to, 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 to forgive people. Because we know where we come from. We know without God's mercy to us, we have no hope. So we can show mercy to other people. Right, so we are pure in heart. Because we are now meek. We have put ourselves aside. We can now freely love people. Freely. Because we have nothing to prove anymore. And we, are, don't have any fear, we don't have an inferiority complex, we don't have a superiority complex. We're at ease with people, we've got nothing to prove. We're only here to please God, and part of that is to love people. So we can do that, we have a pure heart, pure motives. And then we are peacemakers, we are motivated to get people back to God. We are motivated to heal the, the, the hurts we see. And then we will be ready for what God has in store for us, whatever that means. But it will involve some sort of opposition, some sort of persecution. So I hope this encourages me. It helped, encourages me tremendously, especially to remember if we if we miss this, we've missed everything. If it if it becomes following rules, if it becomes anything else, then your relationship with God and your relationship with people, you've lost the plot. I have lost the plot often, often, and it becomes all sorts of things that are not important. That's not. That's not how God is going to transform us. Now remember, this is the start of the, of the Sermon of the Mount. This is Jesus' recipe on how to turn us into kingdom citizens. Because the whole Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom. Jesus revealing His kingdom to us. Us in that kingdom. This is the gateway. No other way. Not through birth. Not through following a creed. It's through, especially the first four. This is how we get there. This is the progression. This is what gets you to the point. 
that allows you to do this. So, oh yeah, let me say that. That encourages me greatly. God is working with us here. He's not setting a bunch of rules for us that we need to follow and take keeping score. And he's not seeing, saying, okay, so how much have you been persecuted? Oh, you can't be very righteous, can you? No, it's the other way around. Because God is working with us and preparing us. And he will bring the persecution when it has a purpose and we are ready for it. And the only thing is God doesn't want to punish us and go put us through horrible times. That persecution, opposition when it comes, will be for God's glory. And that glory will rest on us. We will experience that ourselves. We will have that intimate, intimate connection with Christ that we otherwise would not have. Mm-hmm. Right, ready for the next, for the next one. We're not gonna, I'm, just, I'm just putting this up, up here and you can think about it. The whole Sermon on the Mount is actually a chiasm. It's some, somebody's, some people's viewpoint. And so, if you start with, with Matthew 5, it starts with Jesus and he saw the crowds and began to teach them. It ends in the last, in Matthew 7, 28, 29, with when he has finished, he sat down. So it bookends this whole thing. It's very, very interesting if you read it this way. So if you put all the Beatitudes this way, all eight of them that way, and you start with the next scripture after the salt and light, you'll see, ah, oh, that's all about persecution, performing the law. Then you go with murder, peacemakers. Adultery, divorce, pure in heart. Not from I'm not merciful. Giving to the needy, praying faster. Under this righteousness, do not worry. You're not here to save your own life. You're in God's control. Judging others, you've already mourned for your sin. What can others others do that's worse than you? Right? You already see how how bad your sin is. And then poor in spirit, are sick and not sick enough. It's quite interesting. And and I might I might have the divisions not quite right. This I didn't spend an awful lot. I just I just looked at this, heard what somebody said, and I tried to piece it out to myself. Do it for yourself. But I think what God again is trying to do, Jesus is trying, the way it's written is so that people will remember it, right? So that's one of the reasons. So if you understand, if you've got this, then these things make sense. And I didn't mention it, but the rest of the Sermon of the Mount is sort of a practical explanation, demonstration of what do these Beatitudes mean? What, do, what does it look like in the real world? These are very abstract things. We've spent how many weeks now and and pull it apart and try to figure out what does it mean. Well, the answer really is in the rest of the Sermon Amount. And for the next six weeks or so, I'm not sure how long, we will go into that and then explain. And so as we go through that, try and pass that back and compare with the Beatitudes and see how that helps you understand the Beatitude. And so again, here's the important... Um, you know, um, this, 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 this is really an explanation and it adds to, you know, to... to, to to the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm going to stop now. So this is not really part of it, but I thought I'll, I'll throw that in, have a think about it, look at it, look at the Sermon on the Mount, maybe in that light, and it may help us uh, really understand it, remember it, and internalize it a little bit more. So I'm going to, before we are finished now, and we're going to have communion. And what I've, what I've done is I've not, I've not prepared a separate communion, but this is all about Jesus. So I'm also listening to a podcast that's amazing. It's about this Jewish Christian that has gone back to see how the Hebrews, what the Hebrews texts really, really meant for the people in the time when it was written. Very, very insightful. And the Old Testament is all full of these chiasms. And it's all stories how to understand what's God's purpose. And the line throughout the whole scriptures is all about this. 
It's all about God's hunger and thirst to have our relationship with Him mended. About us, but showing mercy to us. Malcolm mentioned it, but in Zephaniah is it 2, 18 and 19, it says, God rejoices over us sort of singing, delights to show mercy. God delights to show mercy. Not, we have to work our way into a point where God can be persuaded to feel sorry for us and you know, forgive our sins and show mercy. He delights. That's what the whole creation is about. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's this common thread that culminates eventually in the cross and so that to allow us to have this that God is destined for us. So let's bow our heads and pray for, for the bread and wine. Father, thank you so much. Uh, your word is just incredible. It's, it's so amazingly rich. Uh, just phenomenally, in, you know, it's just our, our minds start, start feeling like it will explode when we start to ponder some of these concepts. Your wisdom is just beyond us. Your ways are so much higher than our ways, dear Lord. I pray, God, that, that you will continue to, to just reveal it to us. Lord, open up our eyes so we can really see you. Because it all, it's all about your love for us. Lord, it's, it's not about a bunch of rules. It's not about a bunch of archaic principles that somehow we have to follow. It. No, it's, it's all about your love for us. And Lord, for what you've done on the cross to allow us, to enable us, to make it possible for us to, to have these kingdom characteristics in our hearts, that you can produce that in us, that we can be forgiven of our sins, and we can, be, we can live with you forever. And as we saw in that video, that forever is a very, 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 very long time. We can be so messed up by that little bit of red that's in the start. Help us, God. Help us to have an eternal perspective. Help us, Lord, to live for the white bit of the rope and not the red bit. Help us, Lord, to, to remember that you, Lord Jesus, you make it possible and that you that we will have you in our hearts uh, through the, the, this coming week and everything that we do, that we will remember and we will ask ourselves, how much do I value my faith? Am I giving up the most valuable thing by this decision I'm about to make? Help us, Lord, and, and, and we really desperately need it.